Welcome to Suspending the Rules, Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress. As the calendar turns to May, the House of Representatives is turning its attention toward health care, queuing up a number of bills aimed at shoring up the Affordable Care Act and stabilizing drug prices. Welcome to Suspending the Rules from Bloomberg Government. I'm Adam Taylor. And I'm Adam Shank. This week, the House is also scheduled to take up some foreign policy bills and some bills related to Indian reservations and taking land into trust for tribes. Most attention, though, will be on H.R. 986, the Protecting Americans with Pre-Existing Conditions Act. In the studio now to walk us through that measure and several other pieces of health legislation are BGov senior reporter Alex Ruoff and legislative analyst Daniel Parnas. Thanks for coming. Thanks. Danielle, let's start with the bill we'll see on the floor this week, which centers on state innovation waivers under the ACA. This bill would block administration guidance on ACA waivers, which ease the standards or what's known as guardrails that states have to meet to get waivers from certain ACA rules. To take a step back, the waivers were part of the Affordable Care Act, and they basically allow states to design their own coverage and insurance rules in certain areas as long as they meet those guardrails. It took effect in 2017, and eight states have received waivers to date, mostly for reinsurance programs, which have essentially been a bipartisan approach um, as a way to lower premiums. The uh, Trump administration, in its guidance, focused more on access to coverage rather than the number of people who actually enroll. Because the the statute, the ACA, requires the waivers to not reduce coverage, and they're just changing their interpretation of that? Is that their argument? Yeah, there were several um, sort of standards that states have to meet um, related to comprehensiveness, affordability, and the type of coverage. So, you know, one of the things the Trump administration was doing was focusing, as I said, on access rather than, um, you know, the number of people who actually have coverage. They also are allowing coverage to include plans that don't have to comply with ACA rules, and also allowing subsidies under the ACA to go toward those plans that that don't comply with the rules. So what Democrats are essentially saying is that the guidance undermines things like the pre-existing condition protections because healthier people um, will be drawn toward these cheaper plans that could be more prevalent um, in states that choose to pursue those options. And that would raise premiums for people who do need the ACA protections. And, you know, on the other side, you're hearing from Republicans in some states who pursued broader changes to the waivers that the waivers are fairly inflexible. You know, they say that in order to waive Obamacare, you essentially still have to be Obamacare and that there needs to be more room to let states uh, experiment with ways to bring down premiums in places where they're too high. Of course, the debate over this bill comes in light of the Trump administration's decision to ask a federal appeals court to overturn the ACA in its entirety. Alex, how is that affecting the Democrats' approach? I mean, I think it plays kind of into the message that Democrats, you know, have been picking up and and very much you're going to hear for the next year or so is that the sense the Trump administration is is. You know, they call it sabotaging. The Trump administration would argue they are help, you know, helping in in a more conservative approach with the insurance, you know, the individual insurance markets. But it's kind of interesting, particularly that Democrats are picking up these and focusing on these ACA waivers because really, um, you know, their predictions about the Trump administration's approach in this hasn't come to fruition so far. You know, they've kind of worried that some very red states would really undermine that. You know, would set up, you know, big marketplaces to focus on short-term plans, things they call junk plans. And, you know, a lot of that kind of, as Danielle just pointed out, they've been focusing on reinsurance programs. They're 
they adjust the guardrails, but I guess as a lot of conservatives would complain about and Democrats maybe want to, you know, don't necessarily focus on is the sense that, you know, it's really hard to bend the rules of the ACA. A lot of the core ones are inflexible, but Democrats themselves are kind of harping on the idea that they're testing the limits here of what can be done. But in a more practical sense, those limits are, are relatively in extreme. They're, they're pretty conservative limits in the law. Can we take a step back real quick and just talk about some of these short-term plans a little bit? I know that that's one thing that Republicans have really been pushing for is access to these sort of like, you know, six month, one month, three month, however you want to classify it, types of plans. Like what is it about those plans that Republicans find attractive or or want to push? And, and why do Democrats want to push back against that? I mean, I would. So Republicans are are all about freedom. This is a big, you know, conservative uh, health policy and conservative free market ideas are about freedom and loosening restrictions. And this, I mean, this, there's actually a lot of argument here to be had, especially from economists, that the market itself offers certain insurance plans that need to be, you know, molded to who you are. I'm a 30-year-old man with two kids and a wife. I actually need a pretty robust plan. I need dental. I have a long history in my family of cancer. I need, you know, I, I have to have dermatology things covered. It's a thing that I look for in looking for jobs. It actually undermines, you know, I would not pick up a big high deductible plan. I go to the doctor too much. Uh, Republicans would argue that when I was 22, I didn't need this kind of plan. I did it was by myself. I was on, I could pay a much cheaper thing, and that the money I saved from not purchasing comprehensive insurance would go back into the market. It would allow me to have bought a house, to do other things with that money, and that these need to be sort of competing plans to exist in the world. Obamacare, on the other hand, when it came in, said that when you buy in the insurance market, you actually need a pretty robust plan. It has these benefits that lay out, and the short-term plans were kind of a way around that. They were, and you know. The ACA did envision this a little bit, and they were supposed to sort of temporarily exist. The sense that maybe if you were between jobs, you could pick up a cheap, you know, bare bones plan, something to kind of make you between when you were buying actual insurance or long term plans. And, you know, Republicans would argue that this is fair. This is a part of the market. We're making sure the market works really well. And Democrats would argue that what you're doing is undermining these, these protections. And, you know, this is where those two philosophies fight about whether or not I should, some people should be allowed to buy bare bones plans because Democrats have argued this leads to a lot of problems. This leads to basically medical bankruptcy issues. Right. And one thing I would just point out there as well is that the, the ACA sort of fixed part of that sort of transitional thing where if you didn't maintain consistent coverage over time or you had a lapse in coverage, that that's when insurers could come in and disqualify you saying like, well, you had a lapse in coverage and you have this pre-existing condition and we're not going to cover that or we're not, you're not eligible for coverage through us because of that. And the ACA's pre-existing condition rules came in and, and put an end to that, correct? Yes. And this is where the their politics and policy are really at ends here. That, you know, and this is really, I mean, this kind of gets to the heart of why Republicans are so, Republican ideology is sort of so antithetical to the way the ACA works and that the ACA is, is meant to fight abuses. It's meant to sort of make the insurance world a little bit I guess even, we're even-handed and fair and kind of works against a lot. You know, it has in mind these problems people were running into to very recent history in the insurance markets. And Republicans would argue that this is, that's the market how, you know, that's not, that's how it works, but that those abuses could be fought maybe from states or different approaches, not necessarily a defined set of benefits all insurers must have. Um, and this gets to, yeah, this is very much, I mean, this is the part and parcel of exactly where the messaging is going to stand on. And I will put out that it's actually kind of difficult for Republicans to sell this. If you do notice, 
you don't hear Trump talking too much about this in particular. And that's because it doesn't necessarily ring well. You know, this freedom to buy a cheap insurance is um, is a little bit more difficult to sell, I think. Yeah. And so this, you know, specific rule on the waivers that Democrats are, um, you know, tackling this week is just one of several rules that they oppose from the Trump administration. So, you know, they also have separate bills. And this and this waiver bill was sort of rolled out as part of a package of these other bills. But, you know, they would Democrats want to also block that um, short term insurance plan that Trump would um, expand or make easier to access. A similar one for association health plans, which uh, made it easier for smaller companies to band together and sort of be under the large group market instead of the Affordable Care Act market and avoid some of those rules there. Um, so again, it, it's it's not just necessarily one specific thing on the waivers, but a much bigger conversation we're going to see coming up over and over. Yeah. And you mentioned the the broader package that this waiver bill was, was kind of drawn from. Uh, it also included, I think, tax credits for health insurance premiums and expanding eligibility for those tax credits. Can you tell us more about that, Danielle? Yeah, it would basically expand the tax credits that were in the Affordable Care Act to make them available to more people and also make them more generous. It included, you know, provisions blocking several Trump administration rules that we just talked about. It also would put a lot of money into a reinsurance fund, again, as we talked about, um, sort of a bipartisan approach um, to bringing down premiums and also fund other things that are more Democratic priorities like state exchanges and outreach and enrollment uh, assistance or funding for those activities. So, you know, I think we'll see those, as you know, Alex, you've reported, we'll see those come up either individually or as part of a package in the coming weeks. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is the House leadership. This is kind of the moderate, you know, longstanding Democratic arm laying out its vision for the future of Obamacare for as much detention as we focused on Medicare for all and where the market is going. This is definitely the vision. This is like, you know, Nancy Pelosi's health policy staff and Frank Pallone staff talking like, well, what's our vision for Obamacare in the next five, 10 years? And this is it. This is making sure there's pe- basically people who weren't getting subsidies, people who dislike the health care law the most are definitely those people who make too much to get a, assistance to buy insurance, but they don't make enough that insurance cost is easy to afford. That's like, why don't we reach out to them? Why don't we make you know insurance cheaper? Why don't we put more money into the insurance market? you know, like 10 billion, you know, uh, some of these are billions of dollars pushing into the insurance markets, basically to bring down the costs for consumers. That's a very like, you know, if you're kind of drawing up a democratic answer to how you fix these markets, these bills are it. It's kind of the way of them saying, look, this is what we're doing. If you we're kind of putting our money where our mouth is on on repairing, you know, making plans cheaper, we're buttressing the health law. You know, this is also something that I'm sure if you're United Healthcare, if you're other insurers, this is the kind of stuff that makes you happy. It lets you know the federal, you know, at least one party, at least some set of lawmakers are, are kind of looking out for you or saying, look, you know, we'll put federal money into the markets. We'll kind of boost your your investments here. And uh, that's definitely the kind of signal I think they're trying to send. This is kind of their image with an eye towards those 2020 elections. So that if you're a moderate, if you're Colin Allred, who took over a red seat in Texas, you can go back and say, look, I'm here to fix your markets. I'm here to make your insurance cheaper. And I'm not going to, you know, it's not a government takeover. That's that kind of 
push there that I think is what they're, these are messaging for down the line. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and going further than just their sort of proactive messaging, but it's also their way to push back against what the Trump administration is doing and get back to this issue of pre-existing conditions that both parties seem to be trying to claim ownership of, um, you know, despite the court case that's going on and, and the measures that the Trump administration has taken. It's sort of one of those things that's become very popular. We, we saw in the most recent election that, you know, it was one of the things that helped Democrats take the House. And that's basically, you know, part of the conversation, too. So you, we have these Democratic vision bills, and we also have some relatively bipartisan bills, I think, related to drug pricing. Alex, you reported that Democrats' plan is to package those together and try to get them to move kind of in sync with each other. Is that is that still the plan? Uh, yeah. So, so far, they're, they're looking out in the next couple of weeks at bundling a few of these. Some of it's practical. You know, a $10 billion reinsurance program needs $10 billion in pay, in pay for things that pay for it. Drug pricing bills, you know, theoretically, if they work, will reduce the cost of drugs. Will the government spends less money? So you get, essentially, you reduce federal spending, and no Democrat would pass up the opportunity to pair that with something that spends money. So this is kind of, and part of it's practical is to pay for these bills, but the other part is, and this is, I think, central to why we're talking about it, is it's to put pressure on Republicans, is to put out these bipartisan drug pricing bills, these things that, you know, inarguably most lawmakers want to come home and show they voted for, and they're going to bundle them with, you know, ACA bills that they necessarily, that's going to put them in a political place, a difficult place politically. And I think that you're going to see an interesting messaging war here. I talked to some uh, Republicans this over recently, including today, and I think part of their message, or their, I think they're hoping is to land on, is essentially that Democrats are poisoning the well here. And I don't, you know, it's interesting to ask. It's interesting to see if you can go, if they can go back home and justify voting against a lot of, uh, you know, drug pricing bills. These are pretty popular maneuvers. You know, people want to see. I don't know anyone who doesn't want to reduce the price of drugs. So, in a political stance, it's it's a pretty savvy move. Right, and and the other thing to sort of note about the bills too is that they're kind of relatively small fry. I, I would argue at least the ones that are on the floor this week, like you're not seeing anything related to sort of price negotiation or any of the sort of broader kind of things you see coming out of either the progressive wing of the Democratic Party or, or even some more folks who are feeling more bullish on the issue. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Medicare negotiation is this, it's kind of this elephant in the room that they're working their way up towards. You know, Pelosi's office, as we've reported, a lot of people have reported that, you know, they're trying to kind of get this deal out of the White House for something. They're trying to kind of feel out for this to try to get something across the line here. Um, but yeah, what's coming up is some kind of small potatoes stuff, stuff that everyone can agree on are interesting moves to update federal databases for drug patents or fix abuses. These are the kind of things, they're not necessarily insignificant, but price negotiation, which like progressives have been pushing so hard, they met with a bunch of Democratic leaders recently and basically said, if you don't get a good negotiation bill, you're going to lose us. You know, like there's a lot of weight being pushed around the Democratic Party. Progressive groups are saying like this has to get done. But I, you know, that at the same time, House leadership does not want to waste their vote on a Medicare negotiation bill. They want, they're looking for one that's going to reach the president's desk and one they can say, look, we made this into law. We cut deals. We, you know, push this across the line or one they can, or at least a good show effort. And so that's the one we're waiting to see. And it's going to be interesting to see where they take that approach or how they 
set up a negotiation bill. Yeah, and um, you know, some of just to expand on um, some of the bills that we're seeing um, potentially come down the pipe that came out of committee are mostly focused on you know increasing development or access to generic drugs, and they've been pretty bipartisan. You know, there were some issues that they seem to have worked out in committee, but things like the Creates Act, which has sort of been long simmering, um, you know, addressing issues like pay for delay and and other similar approaches. So you know, those are again like relatively bipartisan bills that. You know, you could potentially see coming out of a final package, right? And just real quick, pay for delay is where a non or a, a brand name drug owner effectively pays to stop a generic from entering the market. Yeah, as um, you know, a tactic to to sort of keep their um, exclusivity or just sort of you know market presence a little bit longer. Well, thanks, Danielle and Alex. If you're a Bloomberg government client listening to this, you can find their ongoing coverage of the healthcare debate at bgov.com. That's our show. Uh, We'll talk to you again next time. Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Find more on the subjects we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg government at about.bgov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at BGov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Danielle Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Shank. Nico Enzalata is our sound engineer. Our theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nasita. More information on that can be found at premiumbeat.com. Hey, I'm Adam Allington. I'm the host of a new show from Bloomberg Environment called The Business of Bees. Here's what you need to know about it. We travel around the country talking to people at every corner of the honeybee ecosystem. This is the largest managed pollination event on Earth. In fact, commercial beekeeping is more important to farming than ever before. But bees are also under threat from pesticides and invasive pests and mysterious diseases. It's sort of like Christmas when you go to the hive in December and you open the lid. You just hope somebody's home. If you're interested in bees too, I think you might like the show. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.